0: That's investher, H-E-R, H-E-R com promo code 100 best ever to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: If you're going to partner with someone, I think it's very important to If you have expectations, outline those expectations up front of each individual partner. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every
1: day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Presario Ventures, a private equity real estate firm based in the booming Austin, Texas market. To learn how you can invest in the future of Texas with Presario Ventures, visit info.presarioventures.com forward slash best ever. That link is in the show notes. I'm Slocum Reed. Today, we're joined by Kurt Weil, a good friend of mine, actually. He is also based here in Cincinnati, Ohio. His company is Incline Commercial. He is a commercial mortgage broker. He is also a real estate investor. His current portfolio consists of multifamily and industrial flex, both personally owned and
1: in syndications.
2: Kirk, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on?
1: Sure. My background has been inside banking in the commercial real estate realm, underwriting commercial loans to becoming a broker. Currently working on Navigating this market with commercial real estate loans and finding ways to get deals done. And on the investment real estate side, really just increasing efficiencies, being happy with what I have at the moment and seeing how to maximize profitability on those properties.
2: Nice. I want to focus this conversation on your loan brokering, Kurt, because I think it has a lot to say to inform us about what's happening in commercial real estate today. The first question I'll ask though, you're a commercial mortgage broker. Again, I already said you're a friend of mine. So for the sake of our audience, let me give them a bit of the background that I give on you when I refer you to a friend or a client of mine. And that is that Kirk can write loans on a lot of things, but one of his specialties is on local banks, especially on recourse debt which means any debt under a million dollars, but any recourse debt in general from a local bank. Because instead of representing one lender, what Kurt does is he keeps his ear to the ground to know what local lenders have an appetite for what kinds of loans based on several factors. I can let him get into those. But Kurt spends his time navigating the local lenders in the greater Cincinnati area and a few others, I believe, in order to make sure that when... A client comes to him looking to borrow for an acquisition or a refi. He's putting them in front of the bank that wants that loan the most, meaning that they'll give the most compelling rate and terms to get the loan. Is that fair, Kurt? Yes, I would say that's a fair assessment. We're recording at the beginning of Q4 2023. This episode should air pretty soon, so this time-sensitive information will still be fairly prescient. Thinking about the lenders that you work with, or at least communicate with, Kurt, what are you seeing about how much their appetite for loans, not just what interest rates are, but what are you seeing about how their appetite for loans has shifted in the last 90
1: days? I would say that the largest focus that every lender I work with is based on appetite for loans. It has shifted greatly. And I say that where the most emphasis that a lender is putting is on appetite for the loan itself. And it's more that everything has become a case-by-case basis. It's not where this time last year, yeah, any investment deal you got, send it my way. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Now you run through a deal with a lender and say, hey, this is what I got. And they'll go, yeah, we'll take a look at it. But they're very hesitant because I think that right now, a lot of lenders are still defining or figuring out what they want to do, what they don't want to do. And I guess probably more most importantly, what can they do? With that being said, what can they do is more of an assessment of them as a lender with their liquidity, maybe their liquidity issues if they have them. A lot of banks are pulling back. So that is probably the key question on any conversation that I'm having. Is can you do it more so than do you want it? I think a lot of lenders want it, but can they do it becomes the main shifting question as opposed to this time last year? It wasn't even a question.
2: Kurt, you said lenders are pulling back on liquidity. Can you explain that? Not only what that means directly, but also what it means with regards to their appetite to lend in the commercial real estate space?
1: Sure. So what happened was. Say this time last year, they had liquidity, they were lending off their liquidity, but then again, when they were borrowing an overnight fund, fund rate that was almost nothing, they were able to lend at better rates. Now that everything's gone up, of course, they're getting charge interest to lend money. So it's costing them, whereas they would rather use their liquidity that they have. And liquidity is becoming more and more of an issue And when I say liquidity to a bank, that means deposits. Every bank is coming after wanting more deposits. When they're able to lend that, more profitable than is if they borrowed money and then lent that out again. What does that mean for real estate investment overall? That goes back to they're being pickier and choosier what type of deals they're taking on, whereas they may have enough liquidity to be able to take on, say, a $10 million deal. And it's a slam dunk $10 million deal. That is like the best underwriting that they have. But then the client needs the best rates and terms. Would they rather go and book that 10 million on that one deal and be done? Or would they rather go take 10 $1 million deals that maybe aren't A paper, but as we'll call them B paper and get a little bit of a higher rate and not have to concede on rates and terms. So they're a little more pickier. Do I take the lowest risk deal? But then give out the lowest profit margin, meaning the lowest rate to them? Or do I divvy that up and separate my risk with ten little bit higher risk mortgages, but get a higher rate of return for myself by having a better spread? So that's in essence why I think they're being pickier and choosier is how can they manage their lack of liquidity and what they can lend and still optimize profitability? Because after all, banks are businesses.
2: So let me see if I can summarize a piece of what you just said. And then if I'm correct, make an assumption and let you correct me where I'm wrong or tell me how this actually works. With the federal funds rate increasing and banks having to pay to borrow money, they would much rather lend their own liquidity, their own cash, meaning deposits and deposit accounts. Let me ask it this way, because I know some investors who have done this. If I'm interested in engaging a lender for a loan or building a long-term relationship with that bank, should I be using the cash I have in the bank as leverage while trying to get a loan, Kurt? If I'm trying to get juicier terms or not even juicier, but terms at all for an acquisition that I know is going to go well, should I be looking into moving my deposits to the lending bank as an incentive for the bank to lend me those funds. Is there a good rule of thumb here? Is this an actual practice that is valuable to
1: investors? That's a very good question. And I think that there's no particular rule of thumb in terms of the investor side. I think more so it's kind of being defined right now as we go through this. When we went through other banking issues in the past, This issue that we run into now wasn't the case before. So there's no rule of thumb, historically speaking. Whereas on the lender side, when they're doing a deal now, I would say nine times out of 10, they're requiring the operating checking of the deal they're doing. So if you're buying a 10 unit, if they're going to do the loan, they want the operating checking along with the property itself. So they want to see all those rent deposits come in. They want to see all the expenses come out. They want to hold that deposit. Kurt, that has
2: more to do with the bank's ability to track the performance of the asset though, than having more liquidity to then lend, right?
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say they necessarily track it in terms of they're not monitoring your account every month to see if you're profitable or not. They do want to make sure that you're making your mortgage payment and they're able to see the account if you're not, which is one benefit. Another one is that they are getting those transactions, getting the the transactional fees off of it. If there are those kind of expounding the whole relationship more than just one investment loan. I think narrowing in more on what you're talking about, if someone has a large amount of liquidity sitting on the sidelines, say at some bank, If you are looking for better rates and terms, is it possible to negotiate by bringing over a large deposit account? Sure, it is. But then I think that you get into a few different things that may be beneficial, may not be beneficial. As an investor, if you say, I'll bring a quarter of a million dollars, but I want it into a business money market account making five, five and a quarter percent interest. It's not really benefiting the bank as much as you may think it is because you're still getting paid interest on your money. You're still getting paid out. They still have to do that. Whereas some banks might say, yeah, we would love that deposit. Here's the two things that we want. And this is where you kind of get stuck on that is one. They want it in a non-interest bearing account. Well, non-interest bearing account, they want to be able to lend off of it and not pay you interest on it. Secondly, if you're doing a commercial real estate loan, say like a 5-1 arm, they may want to hold that entire two fifty for that five year term. So they may say, Yeah, we'd love the deposit, but we want to keep it as long as you have the commercial real estate loan. So they could put a hold on that. And does it benefit you to get maybe a quarter percent or a half percent off your mortgage rate? I don't know. As an investor, if I gotta tie up an extra quarter of a million or whatever it may be given the scenario, I think you would have to assess that yourself because the way I look at it, and maybe I'm wrong, but I look at it as, well, I've gone back to banks and said, well, why would I tell my client to do that? If it's not interest-bearing, I might as well tell them instead of 25% down, I might as well tell them just to put 30% down. At least that way, they're going to pay less interest and rather than keep it sitting in the bank, not making anything. And if you've got to keep it that long, then we'll get it back out on a refi when we're done in five years. So... It could be incentivized up front to help negotiate better terms. But in the long run, is it really better for the investor? So far, I haven't seen a lot of banks willing to play ball to make it worth it in that case. So it's, I think, a field being felt out of what is a happy medium.
2: Kurt, I have a specific scenario for you. Let's just talk about me my own personal example here. And then you can tell me whether or not if our listeners are in similar situations to me, this could be advantageous to them. Again, coming back to the summary that lenders are wanting to lend out of liquidity more than anything else, meaning that they need to have money in deposit accounts in order to lend at more favorable terms so that they're not paying to borrow the money to lend out. So talking about getting liquidity to a bank to make it more favorable to them to lend to me at better terms, I am an owner-operator. I also have a third-party management company. I hold all the security deposits for all the properties I manage, mine, mine with partners and third-party. They sit in a deposit account that is intentionally non-interest bearing for A lot of reasons, long story short, if it bears interest, it's the tenant's interest and not the landlord's. It's not gonna bear a lot of interest. And so it doesn't make sense to go through the hassle of doing that. Just leave it in a non-interest bearing account. But at this point, that number for me, those security deposits that I'm holding in deposit accounts at a bank is low six figures. I don't have any loans with that bank. There's nothing really compelling me to keep them at the place that they are. I'm sure there are other investors listening to this right now who find themselves in a similar situation or are invested in syndications that could do something similar with their security deposits. Again, a lot of capital, non-interest bearing, sitting in an account and the balance should remain relatively stable because whenever money is distributed out of there, you're looking to get another security deposit back into that account because you wanna get that apartment leased up pretty soon. If anything, the amount of money on deposit should increase as the property is operated because you're increasing your rents, you're decreasing your vacancy. That brings the amount of security deposits on deposit. Low six figures, sits in a non-interest-bearing deposit account, balance shouldn't go anywhere. Is that a tool that I and our listeners can be using to get better rates on our loans? And if so, how so?
1: It can be. And I think what that really comes down to is you have to engage the lender that you're speaking with and have a conversation. What does this do for you? Does this help you? Can we build some type of mutually beneficial relationship here where you can tell them? It's essentially like an IOLTA account. It's essentially escrowed money that can't bear interest. correct? And those are good to have for this particular example where, yeah, if you have that ability to be able to move it wherever and put it there and so I can keep this on deposit, especially when you can say the balance isn't going to change much. If anything, it will go down one month, but the next month it's going to go up probably higher than it was for exact reasons that you said with, once you turn a unit, you're going to get higher deposit, higher rent. It becomes a negotiation game. What is the lender looking for the depository relationship? If you can hold it there for longer term, if it's going to help build a relationship. Yeah, a lot of times they'll give you better deals on certain things. Some banks, you got to be careful because they're running promos. Oh, well, you may think you're negotiating with them, but then they just may be reading you off the promo of like, well, we have free treasury management for six months, but then after the six months, it's fee heavy. So you don't want to get entrapped in something, but is it a good time to talk about moving deposits in this, going into the Q4 of 2023 when you're looking for a real estate investment loan? Absolutely. It's something to definitely dangle in front of them. And then if you're not working with a broker or if you're working with yourself, having that conversation, and then a lot of times as a broker or just as myself, the way I would do it for myself as I do my clients, I would bring up that conversation and say, there's a depository account to be captured here too. Is that going to make a difference? And I kind of wait to see what type of reaction they have. Because this throws a lot of bankers off. They're getting drilled in their heads from the higher up that we got to capture more depository accounts. We have to get the full relationship. And when they say full relationship, it's like, we just don't want the loan. We want the deposits. And now when you come to them and say, hey, I have a deposit, they're like, okay. Like it kind of throws them off. So if they're super excited about it, I can't imagine there's a bank out there that says, no, we don't want your deposit account. But how excited they get or what they start talking about, what they can do with it. That's probably the key to really understanding of how bad do they want it? What are they willing to give for it? So it's kind of hard to say maybe as the individual investors, since they don't do it every day. But in my perspective, that's what I look for. I look for their reactions when you say that. Yeah, we'd love that. Yeah, we, we need deposit. And then they start going in a spiel or whatever. That's when you know, okay, well, if I do that, what do I get in return and see if there's negotiation room.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Long story short, it's good to have liquidity. Banks want it. We should want it. With the interest rate volatility and possible market volatility, it's helpful to have cash in the bank. And it's also helpful when you can use that cash in the bank to get better loan terms.
0: We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor struggling to streamline your property management? Are you tired of juggling multiple systems to effectively manage your portfolio? Meet Rentec Direct, your ultimate solution for automating management tasks, reducing errors, and most importantly, saving you time. Rentec Direct offers an all in one platform for accounting, marketing, tenant screening, rent collection, and much more. And the best part? You're never alone. With U.S.-based live support and award-winning customer service, Rentec Direct is the partner you need to streamline your property management so you can focus on what's most important, growing your business and getting more deals done. If you're an investor looking to grow your portfolio, join the more than 15,000 investors and landlords who manage real estate assets totaling more than $200 billion using Rentec Direct. Just go to rentecdirectcom forward slash best ever and sign up for a free trial. Plans start at just $45 a month and you'll receive 20% off your first year just for being a best ever listener. That's R-E-N-T-E-C direct.com forward slash best ever for 20% off.
2: I'd like to shift the conversation here, Kurt. To be fair to our listeners, Kurt and I have spoken about this in the last week or so off the podcast. There is an interesting perspective that transactional brokers and mortgage brokers have on the industry in that they effectively have the ability to look into the future short term, the next 30, 60, maybe 90 days, and see what kinds of transactions are coming down the pipeline, while also in the case of someone like Kurt, being able to see how banks are reacting to the contracts and the properties that they're being brought. Again, we're recording at the beginning of the fourth quarter of 23. What kind of shift have you seen in the commercial real estate market, apartments and otherwise? And is there anything that you're seeing coming up in the next 30, 60, 90 days that you think the listeners should be aware of based on the experience limited to your own mortgage brokering?
1: I would say that in terms of changes that I'm seeing more on the front end, Contract negotiation. So I would say that compared to a year ago, which is the same comparison I like to keep using, I would say compared to a year ago this time, it's getting a little more creative. Contracts are getting more creative. It's not your typical seller name the price, as is, where is, this is how we're gonna close, wave all inspections, DD 30 day close period. Now it's changing a little bit, whether it be there's a little more negotiation where there's a retrade. I find that happening more after inspection where seller may credit some closing costs or there's going to be some type of seller credit to the deal or maybe some type of creative financing piece put into place. I'm seeing some seller finance pieces like a seller note, maybe like 5% here or there. I would say it's getting a little more creative. I think that there's not as much liquidity out on the market as there was. We've printed a lot of money in the past and as that dries up and Consumer spending must stop. Not everybody has as much liquid to invest anymore either. So that buyer pool is dwindling down the same as sellers understand that they're not getting that what I call make me retire price, where someone's just coming in and offering what they never thought they could get for it. So now that I think things are coming back to terms where you have a buyer that has another barrier to entry, not just with a high purchase price, but now you have higher interest rates. And now you have a seller that, for whatever reason, has to sell. If they don't, I'm seeing deals die because the sellers, I'm cash flow, and I don't care. I'll, I'll stick with it. But in terms where the deal has to go through, the buyers are able to get, I would say, more creative or finally something beneficial on the buyer side, if you will.
2: Kurt, I've got a few quick questions here for you and then we'll transition the episode again. First, creative terms in purchase contracts. Separating into categories, buyers finally getting buyer contingencies in a contract again, inspection, property diligence, set all of that aside. When it comes to creative deal structuring terms and creative financing terms for commercial real estate, how have the lenders you work with been receiving those? Are they allowing seller carry back second mortgages in a way that they weren't before? Or are there other things that they are or are not allowing?
1: Good question. I think that I wouldn't say that any floodgates have opened where it's like, oh, there was never seller financing allowed in a subordinate second lien position behind the lender. I feel as if those that were already okay with it, they're continuing to still do it. There may be a couple, I would say, smaller lenders that they'll be okay with it. But I would say the bigger banks that are always like, nah, we don't want that, they stick to their guns in times of pulling back, especially. So I think it comes down to finding the right lender that has the comfortability of doing it, because one downside for a buyer to do that as well is the fact that that's going to hurt the cash flow of the property overall, because you have two payments. I don't want to say hurt, but it's going to impact the cash flow of the property overall as well. Not only are you going to put a first mortgage in place with a lender where they're going to calculate cash flow, but they're going to add in that second payment, whether it's interest only, whether it's amortized over a certain period of time, so that it impacts it. And I think that lenders that have done it, that are comfortable with it, will keep doing it because it's a normal course of business. Those who haven't done it aren't really opening up to do it more, especially in a time like this. But some other creative things that I've seen is I had one client who I would have loved to have done the deal for him, but the way it sits is he was able to negotiate the entire purchase, which was, I think, like $2.5 on a seller note. And this client of mine, he talked to me about it, and I said, look, you're getting a better rate, and they're going to give you a 30-year amortization on this thing. You're going to pay a lot less in cost. Just record it and do it with the seller. Putting a loan on it doesn't make sense. It would benefit me, but I don't think it would benefit you. So I'm like, don't put a loan on it. I said, more so, use that by putting almost no money down. Use all the liquidity that you had to rehab the project. It was a larger multifamily project that needed some love and interior renovations to get top market rent. So I'm like, do the two year thing get units renovated, start getting cash flow, use a seller note, and in two years, let's reassess. If rates are lower than what you have the seller note on and you have all this excess liquidity into it that you put into redo units and it's cash flowing better, now we have a stabilized product where now this is probably where we go to a bank and refinance. So I've actually started to see that strategy work more. What incentivizes a seller to do a 100% seller note? I'm not exactly sure. Sometimes it offsets taxes if they're of retirement age and they're not going to keep ten thirty wanting out. Again, I'm not a tax professional, but they may have their own incentives. But if you can find that, I found that to be a great vehicle in a time where lenders are pulling back. A seller doesn't see as much risk because now they have a property that they've known their whole life. They can take it back and manage it. They've already done it. So that's another scenario that I've seen rather than just holding five percent back or 10% back to help with down payment.
2: That makes sense. Kurt, my last two questions here, and then we'll transition. They're both about transactional volume in the market. How many deals are pending? How many deals are getting funded? How many deals are closing? So we can look at your year-over-year numbers. I think that's really helpful. My first question is, of the properties that are going under contract, if you're aware, recognizing that not all buyers are working with you, of course, of the buyers who are getting properties under contract, how has the number that actually get bank financing changed? Is it a higher percentage of them? Is it a lower percentage? And then transactional volume overall. And if you want to break this up by asset class or loan size, purchase price, feel free. What has the transactional volume done recently? I assume it's going down, but what does that really look like?
1: To put it in perspective, I run my own shop, so it's just me. Last year, I did $196 million in commercial loan paper total. This year, I haven't completely done the numbers through third quarter, but I know I was over 150. So I was very close to being on track to either do the same, if not maybe eclipse that. But again, I don't think I am. Probably start of October was the first time I personally saw some slowdown. And again, I also think that this is a time where people come to brokers more because you need – more of a relationship with a bank, more of creative solutions to get deals done. And I think if you're a good broker that's educated and knows their clientele base of bankers, you can get a deal done. I wouldn't say from contract to close or not close, is that such of a big issue as me personally, I've had more so lenders, they still do the deal, but they're changing their terms. So I've had to stop. Do you mean that they
2: change their terms while underwriting the deal? They change them from the time you present it to the time they're ready to fund?
1: Yes. We've changed gears a few times with a few clients. I'm seeing that more prevalent than just straight denials. Again, historically, I've never really had that problem. And those are the type of lenders I choose purposely not to work with. Those that had that reputation, but in the times where everything's changing every week and To some credit, some of these lenders don't even know what the higher-ups in their banks want, and they're not conveying that down, what they want, what they don't want. So I would say more so than denials, it's more been a changing course, changing a lender midterm after we may get approval, but it's approval with conditions, or instead of a 25-year M, we're going to do 20, or hey, instead of 25 down, we want 30 down, or this isn't stabilized to do this project, we want a reserve account for the first year of P&I payments, always throwing those things in there. Historically, that wasn't done. I'm seeing it more prevalent now than I am denials. And again, I attribute that more to probably my relationship with banks, whereas just to make me feel good, they'll start that conversation out with, well, you know, if this wasn't from you, we would deny it, but this is what we can offer in consolation and change that a little bit. So I'm seeing that become more prevalent. I think that's more because of just the volatility in the market. We don't, still know which way things are going to go. And banks are still, I think, figuring out what they're doing and not doing.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Kurt, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, sir. What is the best ever book that you recently read?
1: Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Everybody I work with has read it. It's a great talking point. But most recently, I've been stuck on interviews of podcasts and a lot of the economic. I like looking at these university professors, like the one out of Duke that is the one through his 1986 thesis coined the inverted yield curve. So just brushing up on that, given their current input on market stuff, I think I've been a little more interested in them books lately.
2: For the record, best ever listeners, Kurt told me yesterday that he was going to slide that into this interview somehow. And there you go. He found it through the best ever book. <laughs>
1: I think you have to because when there's a guy like that coming out on TV and he's telling you his thoughts and how things are with the market, someone like that, he's highly educated, highly respected, and he knows the formulas. It makes a difference. I think he's worth following and listening to. Kurt, what is your best ever way to give back? I like to give back by coaching. I enjoy coaching, not in real estate investing, but more so I get back in my high school. I was a collegiate athlete. So I like to go back with my coach that coached me and help him coach some of the younger guys and see him develop, but real estate investing too. I, I enjoy going with these newer investors out of my way of not just getting the loan, but helping teach them some of the little nuances that I consider coaching because I just enjoy it. Kurt, what is your best ever advice? I would say In a time where a lot of syndications and syndicated money really got or partnering up for money purposes, has gotten very popular. If you're going to partner with someone, I think it's very important to, if you have expectations, outline those expectations up front of each individual partner. Because not even over the long term, but even in short term, I've seen those partnerships even personally ones that I've had, so I can say this from personal experience, you may expecting a partner or someone to do something more than they are, but you never had the conversation of what you expected. And I think it's very important to outline that up front because everybody gets really excited about that deal. Hey, we got the money, hey, we can do this, but they forget about that whole, okay, well, who's gonna do what? And then someone expects someone to do something and they don't, and then it's a lot of back end frustration that builds up and partnerships die. So my biggest thing is if you're ever going to pull money together and do a deal, just make sure you define responsibilities and expectations of every individual up front.
2: Last question. Where can people get in touch with you?
1: I don't do a lot of uh, social media. I don't do a lot of advertising at all. You know me. I'm word of mouth. So I have LinkedIn. You can look at my LinkedIn page or From this, I'll have my information, my cell phone, or my email address. Those are typically how I ask people to get in touch. Those
2: links are in the show notes. Kurt, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day.
1: Thanks, welcome. Appreciate it.